Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session. So, um, I've been invited by a friend, a friend of mine, one of the monks here is putting on a big conference in couple of weeks and they needed people to give to, to speak at it so I'm giving a talk I don't want to make it sound like somehow they sought me out for it I think I was just available uh, but one but one of the talks is going to be on one is going to be on wrong mindfulness and the other is going to be on Buddhism in a digital age so I thought maybe in the next week or so I can go over some of the ideas test them out on you my captive audience So tonight I thought I'd talk about modern Buddhism, Buddhism in a digital age. Uh, even just generally a modern age. There's there's one fairly clear debate or a division modern Buddhism and that's between engagement and renunciation I mean I, I think most Buddhism is renunciant is on the side of renunciation leaving society going off in the forest and I mean it's what you, when you think of Buddhism I think it's still more common to think of the Buddha off under a tree in, in the forest but there are those who struggle with that and argue for a Buddhism or, or feel more comfortable practicing a Buddhism that is engaged, that stays in the world and works to better the world, works to engage with the world rather than disengage. It's a struggle that Buddhists individually go through, and it's a uh, it's a division between various Buddhist institutions, some very social oriented and some very reclusive oriented. Um, but and so this is seen as a sort of a modern dilemma I think but it, it really is actually an ancient dilemma now in the time of the Buddha there was this question of whether one should be engaged or one should be secluded and so you have Devadatta 
the Buddha's cousin who made all sorts of trouble and did all sorts of wicked things. He 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 tried to entrap the Buddha by proposing five rules, one of which was that monks should always live in the forest. And he knew that the Buddha wouldn't accept these rules. And so by proposing them, he wanted to show that the Buddha was was uh, soft, was unfit to be the leader, that Devadatta was the true hardcore dedicated leader. But the Buddha said, of course, no. He said, no, monks don't. If monks live in the city, they should practice Buddhism. <laughs> if monks live in, in the forest, they should also practice the Dhamma. And this isn't even originally a Buddhist debate. You know, this is in the context of Brahmanism, which, which had this, this sort of question as well of how do you fit in this idea of going off in the forest? And it has sort of this... In, India is interesting because there's this fairly clear meeting of cultures, the indigenous culture and the Aryan culture, the whatever, wherever the Aryans came from, these fire-worshipping, horse-riding barbarians. And so it appears that there's this sort of, uh, there arose this high-brow cultured society that was very uh, metropolitan, very urban. And then there were these mystics, shamans, this is where the word shaman probably comes from. Shramana, who were from a fairly indigenous culture, but they were these wise men, mostly, who went off in the forest and, and had deep mystical experiences, or maybe they were just crazy, but... Uh, were looked upon as, as holy men and so there's as, as society developed there was a question of how these men fit in and uh, what was the proper you know as everything as, as all these indigenous cultures go they eventually become institutionalized and so eventually it, they tried at least it seems to set up some kind of system because it was disruptive for men to just decide and women sometimes that they were going to leave home and go go off and live in the forest and so they, they, they made these four ages the proper way to do it was to wait until you're old and retire you're a student and then you're, you're a householder and then, and then you retire but live at home uh, and then once everything is settled, passed on to your children, you leave and go off and live in the forest. The sannyasa stage. And so this is what the Buddha came into. And the Buddha was, of course, one of these men, although he didn't wait to retire. He, he, was, he was quite the rebel. He left home when he was 29, apparently. 
still still just preparing to become leader of his clan but um i think what you can see from the buddha's teaching and maybe you can get a sense of where i'm going with this is is that it, there isn't a clear um, division in the Buddha's teaching there isn't a, a decision made on one one way or the other I think clearly the goal is renouncing the world in, in one sense but in another sense it's to some extent taking taking other people with you in, in general you know and and thereby working with the world. Freedom from the world doesn't come without the world. It's not like a jail cell you can just break out of. This is what you you're, you're learning in the meditation course. You can't just get away from your problems. That's not the way out of suffering. It's your problems that free you from your problems. The Satipatthana Sutta is a very good, I mean, it's a very special teaching, very powerful teaching. Just simple words, when you're, when you're angry, know that you're angry. When you're in pain, know that, that it's pain. When you're walking, know that you're walking. Not running away from anything. And the world either. To some extent, the world is part of our practice. Other people are part of our practice. And so engagement is a part of our practice. Renunciation and engagement. And so when I look at Buddhism, I look at this division and I think it's an important one. But rather than a division among Buddhists, it's a division among Buddhist practices. There are social practices and there are spiritual practices. There are engaged and there are renunciate practices. And both, I think, arguably are, should be, or at least can be, part of our path to enlightenment. So, what I'm going to try to do in, in my talk, in fact, this might be exciting, I, I'm going to try to figure out the exact time and see if we can do a second life session live so have all of you here with me and then about halfway through just pop it up and show that you've all been sitting there listening uh, just to show the power of, of second life really as as a communication platform But I'm going to try to highlight some of the tools that I've created, or, or some of the uh, not some of the means by which I've used the internet, used technology, and some as some other people have created. And I mean, talk about the Buddha Center, for example. But I want to make clear this distinct this distinction that our, our social practice. I mean, a good example of a social practice is metta. 
Metta is a, a, I mean, it's it's a meditative practice. You just sit quietly alone and send love to the whole world. But it's social as well, in the sense of it changes the way we react to others. It changes the way we interact with others. We we approach other people with love as a result. I mean, when we talk about engaged Buddhism, we mean changing the world. We mean doing something to improve the world, not just running away and freeing ourselves. The fact is, improving your own mind does improve the world. Metta is a very social practice. Changing yourself is a very social practice. To that, to that end, renunciation in a Buddhist sense, which of course is internal, it has nothing really to do with running away to the forest, is, is in fact a social practice. I mean, part of it is social in the sense that it changes your social interactions. It makes you wiser. I mean, the most important thing it does is teaches you. Teaches you right from wrong, good from bad. It makes your mind clear when dealing with uh, challenges, difficulties, conflict. I mean, I don't know if if there really is this division, in fact. Um, it's maybe two sides of, of, of the practice. You know, the Buddha answering this question of helping yourself or helping others, he says, when you help yourself, you help other people. When you help other people, you help yourself. I, mean, I don't think there was a equivalence there. It's very much clear, very clear that helping yourself is is much better thing to focus on there's certainly teachings to that extent and renunciation and going off to live in the forest is a great and wonderful thing but it's certainly not all of buddhism and i don't think there's a need to create a division of sorts That's the first part of my talk, I think, and the talk about all the technology I use. And of course, that's very interesting, but I don't know that it's a topic for tonight's Dhamma. So, uh, so that's sort of the direction I'm heading to talk about this idea of engaged versus renunciate. Renunciant? I don't know the actual word. But for us, I think that's important. It's important to be clear. This isn't running away. Coming here isn't running away. And your practice doesn't end here in the meditation center. Mindfulness is a tool that you use in your life. And it's a tool that you use here to help you with your life, to, to better deal with your challenges and conflicts and so on. So a little bit of food for thought, Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for coming up. And I've got the question page up, so I can answer some questions here.
So, um, completely coincidental, the top question, and it is completely coincidental, the top question is about what my thoughts are on important issues like cli climate change and how realization could help ease people's bias against these crises. In fact, it's a good point to bring up in my talk. Because, of course, things like climate change are, are brought about by nothing more than greed at the root. You know, if we weren't so greedy for consumption, even just greedy to procreate too many babies, as the Dalai Lama said, we need more monks. There's too many people in this world. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I don't know what the ethics are there, but... Uh, I don't know about population, I won't, won't touch that one, but certainly for consumption. Our consumption is way out of hand. And our, our need for, for uh, products, regardless of the cost to the environment, you know, our need for instant gratification is, is completely... Even just our need for meat, for example... We don't need to eat meat. We have no reason to eat meat. And it's incredibly expensive to the climate and, and even to our individuals. So, uh, yeah, I think um, our practice certainly improves these. And, and so I've talked about this before, but I think things like climate change are not incredibly worth focusing on because it's like a Band-Aid solution. Sure, you get people to be concerned about the climate but if you don't uh, if you don't well I mean looking at the climate does make people more aware of, of their greed and force people to give up their greed but um, I mean let's be clear that the real import the real problem most important thing to 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 address is our greed Did the Buddha possess any supernatural powers or miracles? Um, I mean, I've never met the Buddha, not in this life, obviously. Um, but I have no problem believing that the Buddha had um, powers beyond what most of us would believe possible. Or powers beyond what most of us are capable of. We're told to hold our hands up to our stomach as opposed to laying them on our laps. Is either position okay? Yes. The body position in in our tradition, not so important. It's all about the mind. The mind is what's more important. In Theravada, recently read that only those who practice meditative monastic life can attain spiritual perfection. Enlightenment is not thought possible for those living in the secular life. Of course, it's easier that way, but could it be possible? Yes, whoever wrote that doesn't know what they're talking about. There's a queen who became an arahant, a very famous example. It's very Theravada Buddhist, a queen. And the Buddha said, ah, well, either she becomes a bhikkhuni or she just wastes away because there's no way she's going to be able to be a queen. And so the king said, well, then let her become a bhikkhuni. Okay. 
Okay, this is a long question. I'm not going to read it all, but, well, you know, maybe it's nice. Person who has suffered extreme stress for many years, 10 plus years, withdrawn into serious depression, debilitating anxiety. Been seriously studying you, your YouTube videos for a few months, but I'm new to consistent daily practice. And today, I don't know if you've picked up my booklet, so there are many ways to practice, but I recommend reading my booklet if you haven't. Today experienced something wonderful. So, a sudden burst of warm, intense happiness. Tears of joy. Can't recall such an overwhelming sensation. Came out of nowhere. Half of me just wants to share my excitement, and the other half curious wants to know, is this normal? Um, so, well, great. I mean, it's great for you to be able to see that you're not cursed, you're not stuck. Um, I would say, I mean, you can see that now that your brain is capable of pleasure, um, and that the meditation clearly helps you break out of this rut because uh, our our behaviors become habits, and so things like depression for ten years that's got you stuck in a fairly deep rut but miracle of miracles just a little bit of meditation and you can see you can pop yourself back out of it why Be I mean because those 10 years they aren't it's not like you add up those 10 years and you've got 10 years worth of, of depression um, old stuff fades we're still only dealing with the present moment so if in this moment you start meditating people wonder how can few weeks of meditation counteract years of depression or anxiety it's because those years don't exist they're past it's just you counting the truth is well what are you now and it's based on what you've done before there's no question that all of that had an effect but you're still just dealing with you and your brain right uh, and so creating new habits of mindfulness I mean it works it, it pops you out of it so your next step, of course, is to learn to become mindful of the joy because that's not the goal. It's a good sign. It's a sign that you're learning to let go of the depression and so on and find ways to be more uh, centered, more more peaceful. But the joy itself is something that you have to note. Otherwise, you get attached to it and you'll be looking for it and you'll even get upset when it doesn't come. I mean, you'll you'll see this as you practice, but just to give you a bit of a shortcut so you don't get caught up in it you don't get caught up in anything the Buddha said nothing is worth clinging to so congratulations good for you but the next step when and maybe it won't come again maybe not for a long time maybe never but um, learn to deal with it when it comes you know, pleasure when it comes and desire for it excitement about it all of that is part of the practice it's not to, to to take away from this experience is a great sign. It's just onward and upward. There's there's more to do. Good for you. Really good. Really nice to hear. Thank you for writing that out. I suffer from low self-esteem, and it can only be boosted through activities. How can I cultivate it permanently? Well, we don't need self-esteem. We're worthless. You are worthless. I am worthless. If you, if you can figure that out, then you don't have to worry about self-esteem. Stop esteeming yourself. It's useless. 
we are worthless. We are worthless means all of this is worthless, meaningless. Doesn't you know, it's what you make of it. You can pretend that this house and your job and your face and your body has some meaning. Your brain, your intelligence, your memory. You can claim that it all has meaning and worth, but it's, it's all just subjective. It's what you make of it. And that frees you, seeing that frees you Because then you can look at, well, what's really important And what's really important is happiness and suffering, peace and stress Have sense of always being alone Even when with others in groups Not a sense of loneliness, but it's like I'm the only one there Is this normal? So these questions of what is normal are not I've talked about this before It's not proper to ask And I should maybe put it in the things Please don't ask is it normal Or please you know, rephrase it and, and, and ask yourself what do you really want to know and Do you want to know whether you are A freak? I mean, is that what you're asking? Because you are you And that's most important It's most important to see what is uh, Asking what's normal doesn't do us any good Because well, who, who cares? Maybe normal is a horrible thing to be Right We're not trying to be normal We're trying to be good and pure And, and perfect to some extent Free, we're trying to be free So Good question would be Is that is that a positive state? Is it a negative state? Those would be better questions to ask I mean I'm not criticizing this People ask this all the time But it's just a. I think it may be a little lazy Because we, you know Is this normal? It doesn't it's not a useful question to got it twice tonight and I'm not I'm not attacking you for it. I think I would probably ask the same thing, but it's it's uh you have to think it through. What do you really want to know? So good question is is it um is it good, is it bad? Those are probably more important. So it's neither. I mean it's an experience. So try to note it and be mindful of your feeling, feeling or something. If you like it or dislike it, you note that, and so on. Okay, and that's all the questions for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.